Welcome to COVID-19, Keeping Up with the Moving Target. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers with DKB Med. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are pleased to welcome today our expert faculty members, Dr. Chuck Vega. He's Health Sciences Clinical Professor at UC Irvine Department of Family Medicine, Assistant Dean for Culture and Community Education, as well as the Director for the UC Irvine Program in Medical Education for the Latino Community. Um, with us today, we also have Ima Hankai, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Vega, Dr. Hankai, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks well, for thank you, Faith, and great to be here. Thanks for everybody for joining us. These are our faculty's disclosures. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. All activity content materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and the faculty presenters. Today's learning objectives are to describe the current, current management strategies and identify potential treatments for mild to moderate COVID-19 evaluate the best practices for managing patients with COVID-19 using monoclonal antibodies and other agents, describe current management strategies and identify potential treatments for COVID-19 patients requiring hospitalization, and assess the impact of COVID-19 on Black, Latinx, and American Indian and Alaska Native communities and the factors contributing to health disparities in these communities. Um, as a note, this is all current as of Friday, June 18th. So if you're watching this on demand, please do refer to NIH and IDSA guidelines for the most contemporary guidance. Okay, and with that, I would like to hand this off to Dr. Vega. Thank you, Dr. Vega, right. for your time today. No, my pleasure. Thank you, Faith. And you're getting dangerously good at those monoclonal antibody pronunciations. I may ask you to pinch hit for me in a few minutes if I have trouble with the old bamlutinib. Um, that's the one. Um, but uh, it's it's great. Thanks to our audience for taking time out of your day to be with us. I know that everyone's busy, and so it means a lot, but this remains such an important issue for us. Um, so I'm going to be speaking more to uh, an introduction to, uh, to COVID-19 as we know it today uh, and focusing more on the outpatient treatment, which is really where my practice in Santa Ana, California is, is based and focused. And I'm going to be handing off to Dr. Ahankai to talk about her experience, uh, particularly on the inpatient side and what treatment options there are there. So we're really going to focus on therapeutics today, but put in your questions, please, uh, into the question box because it's always stimulating. We're going to certainly try to leave some minutes at the end uh, for discussion. We are going to focus today on, on some issues around you know, why we are seeing uh, so much higher rates of uh, COVID-19 in our African-American uh, in our Latinx, in our American Indian, Alaska Native uh, populations, and why outcomes seem to be worse there as well. So we are going to try to wrap that all in as we go through. But as the outpatient person, I'm here to remind you that in most cases of COVID-19, while we we had a field hospital, you know, likely you had a hospital that was overstuffed. Maybe it was just a couple four months ago um, with with patients with COVID-19. Most patients have more mild and moderate illness which can be managed as outpatients. And we now have more treatment options for them. This is just a nice level setting graphic because it includes a bunch of different information. Uh, it has the, um, the viral load of SARS-CoV-2 RNA and it correlates it with symptoms. So that red line correlates with symptoms. And as you can see, one of the real insidious things about SARS-CoV-2 
is that you get that increasing viral load before you have symptoms. So you have that pre-symptomatic spread, which is a real problem. On the backside, that viral load takes a while to go down. It takes you know, the course of a week, two weeks. You might see uh, patients who are still shedding virus several weeks later, particularly if they're very sick. Uh, and so uh, there, there's another chance for more infectivity associated with SARS-CoV-2. And then the symptomatology, it, it varies. Um, it does vary from, from patient to patient quite a bit. But I think one thing that always stood out to me about SARS-CoV-2 is that there is this chance for a more inflammatory reaction that can you know, occur on day six of illness, day eight of illness, day 10 of illness. Um, that's that cytokine storm where it's not so much the infection, it's the body's response to it. It's really promoting a lot of the pathology, particularly respiratory pathology that can put patients in the hospital in the ICU. Um, we have different treatment options available. Anything you want to think of using as an antiviral, you want to get it on board as soon as possible. So generally, antivirals work best if you start it right away. Convalescent plasma, we're not going to talk about uh, too much today because it's, it's not used in as many centers. Uh, there has been some negative uh, studies showing that it doesn't really make a difference. But if you look at uh, studies which really focused on high titer plasma, so uh, and especially when it's given to folks who don't naturally mount a strong immune response, uh, maybe they're you know a lot older, maybe they're on chemotherapy or on other immunosuppressives. You know, there uh, I think convalescent plasma can still have some role, but we're not going to touch on it too much today because we have a lot of stuff to cover. And then immunomodulators can be used more during that inflammatory phase of illness. So in terms of risk for severe illness and who we want to really watch out for, and, and this is part of our triage system when we're taking in somebody with suspected COVID-19, um, there's a lot of factors. These are the patients I see every day. I don't see a lot of well patients. I see a ton of folks with heart failure, diabetes, COPD. And, and in my practice, given that I'm older and been there a while, I see a lot of folks with advanced age past 65 years too. Um, so I'm not going to belabor this, to, but you know, I think that one, a couple of highlights you know, in the past uh, two months, it's really uh, been shown that it's type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes are both independent risk factors. Um, obesity is definitely a, a risk factor uh, for more severe illness with COVID-19. In one meta-analysis, COPD stood out as, uh, as the most significant risk factor uh, in terms of comorbid illnesses. And generally, these uh, comorbid illnesses are, are additive, you know, probably just like my practice. You don't just see patients with diabetes, but they have obesity and they have heart failure and they're 68 years old, et cetera. And so we can't forget that age is a substantial risk factor for complications. I get very nervous about uh, folks in assisted living because we know that uh, when we think about mortality in COVID-19, uh, there was a huge outsized proportion of folks who lived in assisted living facilities who died from COVID-19. So that's a public health crisis uh, right there. But you also want to keep in mind that um, American Indians, Alaska Natives, uh, Black or African American patients, Latinx patients, all are at higher risk for incidence of COVID-19, for hospitalization due to COVID-19, and for mortality uh, due to COVID-19. And there's been a lot of discussion as to why this is, but at this point, you know, the, those, those facts are not in dispute. Um, the causative factors are something we're going to talk about today. And it makes me think about the fact that, you know, many individuals with COVID-19 are used in the emergency department. It's something we're really trying to, you know, guard against in my setting because we are trying to be good stewards. I think this past year has tossed a ton about stewardship of healthcare resources from 
PPE uh, to uh, to drugs that can that can work, and then really to especially at the level of the emergency department and inpatient units in ICU, really trying to keep patients out of those out of those spaces so we have enough room for the for the sickest of the sick. But so many individuals in my community are used to using the ED. I'm a primary care physician, and unfortunately, so many individuals in my um, community are used to using the ED as their primary care office. So when they get sick, that's where they go. That's where that's where my parents went. So um, so therefore, uh, it, I think there's there's something of they don't have the the access to care and they don't have the um, the, the preventive care. So these are not folks who are getting their vaccinations. They're not getting routine screening diabetes uncontrolled, hypertension uncontrolled, asthma uncontrolled, and, and that's why we see higher rates. So it's not a, and I think we'll hit on this several times, it's not a genetic trait, uh, it's not, you know, that there's some physiologic difference, you know, when we look at people of color and the response to SARS-CoV-2, it really comes down to the social determinants of health that uh, we have uh, groups of people who are living in multi-generational households, which are cramped. We have a lot of folks in that frontline service industry. Um, and then they have more comorbid illness. So what will we expect to happen? Of course, more patients of color are going to go to the ED. And of course, they're more likely to be hospitalized and unfortunately die of COVID-19. So these are, these are, I think, are known uh, disparities that have been magnified during this pandemic. But let me get back to like routine care of just of uh, of our uh, outpatients. Um, you know, so the, you know, first we're going to try to monitor symptoms. We try to check in with patients with COVID nineteen through telehealth every couple of days, um, three days max, until they're really starting to improve quite a bit, and then we can let them go a little bit longer. Um, so monitoring symptoms right now, you, you last you know, as of you know, a year ago when there were no pulse oximeters available, I was really struggling. Like, well, see if you if you can climb you know your stairs if you have stairs at home, but many people didn't. Um, you know, that's a good sign. Um, there, I was trying to organize some different techniques. Now pulse oximeters are much more widely available commercially and cheap. Uh, we are discharging patients from the hospital with them, for example, um, but. They, they need a, a good pulse oximeter, um, a good thermometer. Don't forget the basics, thermometer, because they have a lot of patients on day 10 of illness telling me, yeah, I feel better, but I still get sweats and chills. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with that because I should not release you from isolation if you still have fever. So they should be checking uh, their temperature and their oxygen saturation routinely, and they should be know how to use it. So if you get a, a pulse ox of 68%, don't call. The first move is not go to the ED. The first move is, you know, put it on a different finger, squeeze a little bit, turn it on and off, and it's all those tricks we normally do. And I think the rules for isolation and the rules for quarantine were just switched, so now you don't have to follow these if you are vaccinated, so that's a big benefit, another way we can promote vaccination. But I have a feeling you're probably familiar with those rules overall. Let's go into antibody-based therapies. Because they have uh, become a you know, hot topic, uh, they are effective, and, uh, and it's a story that continues to be told, both in terms of the outcomes they're achieving in clinical trials, the, the, uh, the number of products that are available, and how we're using them, particularly um, as variants start to spread around the United States. Uh, it's important to pay attention to this therapeutic area. But uh, do think of them like antivirals. The sooner you can get them on board, the better. My goal is 24 hours. Do I often achieve this goal? Uh, that's 24 hours since the onset of symptoms. Uh, do I often achieve this goal? I have, I, uh, I do not. But I often get close, and I have gotten them uh, within one day of the onset of symptoms in several patients. And that made me feel really good. Those patients did better. One actually ended up hospitalized, but uh, but she, boy, 
she had a lot of comorbid illnesses. She did find them, survived, and is doing better now, uh, thankfully. Uh, so let's, what about the data on these agents? So let's start with banlanivimab plus etzivimab. This got its original emergency use authorization for banlanivimab as monotherapy back in November. And so you may wonder, wait, what's etzivimab? I mean, why is it being added in? Well, this cocktail actually binds to different epitopes of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. So it essentially, the idea is you'll get greater efficacy especially as variants uh, start to spread uh, by targeting different sites and different receptor uh, proteins on um, that antigen. And so it got its EUA uh, as a combination drug in uh, February, and that's as a result of the BLAZE trial. Uh, BLAZE is an ongoing phase one through three trials looking at uh, these uh, products like Bamlimab plus Atacidumab. And you can see, if you compare it to a lot of folks who present with COVID-19, younger age, um, a diverse patient population, and but still many are sick, and that's 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 pretty typical of the practice I see. Originally, uh, Blaze's outcome was uh, viral load at 11 days. It wasn't the best outcome, and Benlimumab alone never actually achieved that outcome versus placebo. That it actually had a significant reduction in viral load by day 11. A lot of patients they had more mild and moderate illness got better by you know day five, and their viral load was already decreasing. You know whether they got placebo or Benlimumab. But combined with etzivimab, it actually achieved that target of reduced viral load versus placebo at 11 days. But something more important emerged, even with banlimumab as monotherapy, and it was a much more patient-centered outcome. These patients had less healthcare use. They were less likely to use the ED, less likely to use the hospital. And especially, it was important for folks at high risk. Uh, so those with risk factors such as obesity, diabetes, COPD, et cetera, uh, did even better with the monoclonal antibodies. This is another result from the phase three cohort of Blaze. This is using the lower dose of banlimumab plus atosivimab. Again, a significant reduction. Now looking at the outcomes of hospitalization or death, very important patient center outcomes uh, with banlimumab outperforming placebo uh, by 87% in this study. Another product, casabrimumab plus indebimab. Now this one got its EUA, its emergency use authorization in November, 2020. Uh, and that's a result of uh, this particular trial, uh, another placebo-controlled trial. We're just looking at outpatients with moderate COVID-19 here, diverse patient population, younger age, still a lot of underlying risk factors, and again, reduced healthcare use. Especially remember, it was critically important, um, you know, back in November, uh, especially all the way through the winter when we were seeing at the, the height of the pandemic with so many cases that we really wanted to keep patients out of the ED, out of the hospital. And monoclonal antibodies certainly played a role in that. They're superior to placebo in those outcomes. And they are associated with few adverse events. I'll, I'll just try to address this uh, briefly. So, you know, one of the real limitations of using monoclonal antibodies is they have to be given in a setting. It's an IV infusion. It's given over an hour, usually. And uh, the patients have to be monitored during the infusion, and they have to be monitored for an hour afterwards because there is the risk of some kind of severe uh, event, such as anaphylaxis. So there has to be a crash card available. There has to have folks who know how to use it. And that's been a real limitation on the use of these agents, particularly in under-resourced settings. You know, where do you find infusion centers? You know, do we have enough crash cards? Do we have enough personnel? Um, and so that's been a limitation. And, and I think that a lot of health systems have worked really hard to repurpose parts of the ED. They repurpose part of a dialysis center and they're able to get the folks with expertise. It's worth it. In terms of the actual risk, um, it seems very low of a severe adverse reaction. In the EUA, um, 
for Bamlimab, Esivimab, they, uh, they described that there was 1,000 patients uh, that were followed for this outcome. There were four uh, severe events. One, only one required epinephrine, and everybody uh, did okay. As as this, as these monoclonal antibodies were rolled out nationally, I was very curious. Gosh, that, you know, are we going to see this spike in severe adverse events? Um, no, we have not. And uh, and other than that, they are very well tolerated. There's not a lot of side effects associated with the use of monoclonal antibodies. So going back to Casarivimab plus Indevimab to continue that story. Um, the uh, phase three portion, now we're talking about a, a larger group of patients, 4,000 uh, 4, of them. And these are high, uh, patients at high risk for complications of uh, COVID-19. Um, and you can see, again, whether using the lower dose, which has uh, really been the, uh, the dose that's been approved versus the higher dose, uh, still a significant reduction in either hospitalization or death uh, versus placebo. Um, in this study as well, the um, uh, the Casarivimab plus Indevimab was associated with a four-day reduction in the duration of symptoms. And uh, so brand, well, relatively new, uh, the EUA uh, was changed, so really emphasizing use of the lower dose. And very importantly, in settings when an IV is not feasible, it's reasonable to consider using it subcutaneously, which would be a, a big load off of all that logistical stuff, which made, uh, which made giving these monoclonal antibodies more difficult to do. And we do have a new agent on the boxes, so trivimab. And so this one is as a more uh, recent EUA from May 2021, based on the Space 3 trial of 583 patients. Um, and you can see, again, a significant reduction with so trivimab versus, um, uh, versus placebo for the risk of hospitalization or death. Uh, and so this trial was stopped early because of clear uh, superiority of uh, sotravimab versus placebo. And it's also being studied, maybe if we combine different monoclonal antibodies uh, together, we could actually get greater efficacy. So those, those studies are ongoing. And that's important because we are facing these variants. Of course, we're going to get to variants. We're going to discuss variants today. Um, so, uh, you know, right now uh, in, uh, in the U.S., it's really that B117 is the predominant um, uh, variant A in circulation, followed by, followed by, you know, well, well behind by P1. Uh, but there's a lot of concern about the 617 variant. That's the one that was originally reported in, in, in India, rather. And if you're wondering, well, what happened to bamlimumab as monotherapy, this table shows you. So with these variants, uh, we saw greater resistance to bamlimumab as monotherapy. Still can be effective, especially for B117, which is, again, that's the predominant uh, variant in the United States right now. You don't have to worry about that particular variant. It's it's sensitive to all the different monoclonal antibodies. But uh, bamlimumab plus exzimab is running into trouble with P1 and this B1351. Um, whereas casarivimab, sotravimab, so far don't seem to be affected uh, by the variant. So this, but it is obviously a you know something that we continue to watch. Big question is if 617, which is the one, yeah, again, originally described in India, has a much higher rate of transmissibility. Um, if that becomes more prevalent in the United States, you know, what do we do then? We'll have to follow the data. So it's important to stay tuned and to have your trusted resources and follow them when you're, we're thinking about how we employ monoclonal antibodies. But what really hasn't changed is some of the core elements of who should get these uh, monoclonal antibodies. So um, at age of at least 12 and over, um, outpatients only, not for inpatients. There, there was just a trial that was uh, that was published where they, or, or I'm sorry, there was a press release about um, they did have improvement in a subset of uh, patients with uh, of who were inpatients who weren't responding to the virus in terms of their own immune systems. Um, that's great, but we don't apply that now. It's it's really we don't apply monoclonal antibodies outside of a study setting. 
uh, for inpatients. For outpatients, if they're over 12, if they have one of those high-risk conditions, which are really common, I've got a slide coming up on that in a second, um, they have to be within 10 days of the onset of symptoms. But remember, the sooner you can get these uh, antibodies on board, the better. Um, and as I mentioned, you have to um, uh, you have to monitor the patients and have uh, the ability to uh, have a, a crash cart available. So age over 12, high risk for uh, um, complications, outpatients, those are the keys to remember. And in terms of the, the high risk conditions, um, many of my patients will qualify for one of these conditions. I'm not gonna read the list, uh, but, uh, but I think that uh, this is actually a simplified list, believe it or not, versus what they had previously where you had to look at age and then risk factors. And so now it's, it's a lot more straightforward. One group I'll call out especially here is, um, I manage a lot of patients uh, with cerebral palsy, um, you know, with severe Down syndrome, I would rank those folks in this high-risk category. If they have neurodevelopmental disorders, it's going to be a risk factor for complicated COVID-19. Uh, get them monoclonal antibodies and, and get them the vaccine, of course. So here's the NIH and the Infectious Disease Society of America uh, recommendations. Generally similar, they, they don't recommend, um, you know, one therapy over another. Um, they haven't really had a chance to react to sotrovimab uh, yet, but these uh, these guidelines have had different iterations and they are evolving. So uh, so watch the space, but uh, but right now using monoclonal antibodies, they are underused um, for those high risk patients over 12. Or um, you know it's it's a it's something we should be doing more of actually. That said, unfortunately sometimes um, I feel like I fail. I, I get I hate to get a little paternalistic, but I, I take it on myself personally. And patients do end up in the ED and they do uh, wind up hospitalized. Luckily, we've got great colleagues like Dr. Ohankai to, to help take care of them. So I'm gonna hand off the next part of this discussion to her. Great, thank you so much, Chuck. Um, so in, in this section of the talk, we're really gonna review the role of antivirals and immune modulators in the treatment of hospitalized patients with COVID-19. But I do wanna make one point that's important because as um, you know, we're in a different phase clearly of the pandemic where people are not you know, afraid to go to hospitals and people are going to hospitals for their other you know, flares of uh, COPD or CH CHF, and they may have mild, mild COVID-19 disease in, the, in that case. And so there are some patients who are hospitalized for reasons other than COVID-19 who may still be eligible for, for the outpatient kind of protocol for management. Um, but the, what I'm focusing on here are people who are admitted specifically for their COVID-19 disease. So um, we'll start with, uh, with remdesivir. So remdesivir is um, a prodrug. It diffuses into the cell and it, it uh, is metabolized into uh, an active drug, which acts like uh, the, this molecule we've all heard about, ATP, adenosine triphosphate, an analog of that. And so it actually incorporates into um, the RNA chains of, of uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 um, using its uh, polymerase as it's uh, building, replicating, or translating that virus in the cell. Um, and it incorporates as this kind of a a mimic of ATP um, and stops that process of translation or stops that copying process. Um, so that's how um, rem remdesivir actually works um, in the cell. And the data that supports the use of remdesivir comes from this ACT-1 trial. This is a multi-site, multi-country trial. Um, one of the first we heard results, uh, positive results of um, randomized um, over 1,000 patients to remdesivir or placebo 
um, and it was stratified by disease severity um, and, and location. And the findings really showed that um, the, the, the primary endpoint was time to recovery. So people who were randomized to uh, remdesivir had a shorter median time to recovery of 10 days compared to 15. Um, and that, when adjusted, was um, you know rate for recovery uh, that was increased by 29% um, in the remdesivir group. Um, they also looked at mortality outcomes in this study. Um, you can see on this slide that at 15 days, there actually seemed to be a mortality benefit of remdesivir, but this was lost when that was followed out to, uh, you know, almost a month at 29 days. So probably no real significant mortality benefit, but definitely improvement in uh, time to recovery. So this figure um, shows the rate of recovery in the, in the treatment arm, that's the, the, the blue line, the remdesivir line, compared to control in the red line. Um, and you can see differences in the, in the two lines here. This is um, looking at proportion recovered over time. There's no overlap um, in the confidence intervals of those two lines. So there's a clear distinction between those outcomes um, with people in the remdesivir arm doing better. And then when we look at um, some important subgroups in this analysis, um, you can see the same distinction in, in the red versus blue lines um, in the top right panel C. And that's important because that's the group of, of patients who were, were receiving oxygen. So of all of the subgroups, you can tell just by kind of stepping back and looking at this graph that the patients who were receiving oxygen had the most benefit. And if you look at the graphs um, at the top, uh, the top left, um, bottom right, basically the, the, all, the other three, you can see that there is some overlap um, among all of those lines. The, ones, uh, the one in the bottom right is people who were um, on mechanical ventilation or ECMO. You can see those lines nearly overlap, and so there really was no benefit of remdesivir in that group. As far as um, safety in the trial, um, uh, there were... Uh, the serious adverse events were about 24% in uh, remdesivir, 32% in placebo. Grade three and four events were similar across the two. Um, and the most common um, non-serious adverse, adverse events occurred in at least 5% of patients. Um, so it's fairly well tolerated, although um, people who had uh, really severe uh, kidney disease, really low GFR, um, were really not studied here, so it's not recommended for use in those populations. So this slide shows um, the, the, the data, the recommendations from both the NIH and IDSA, and Chuck referred to these groups earlier. They both have their own websites um, where they update these recommendations. Um, but you can see the NIH here recommends from Desivir for patients who are hospitalized and require supplemental oxygen. So that's the important part and point. Um, if you remember the, the visual of the red and blue lines, it's the oxygen patients who were on oxygen who, who really did the best um, with remdesivir. And IDSA, similarly, they are recommending remdesivir for hospitalized patients with severe disease um, who are requiring supplemental oxygen, but not on mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Remember, those were the lines were on, on top of each other, so they really did not benefit. Okay, so moving on to the immunomodulators um, for inpatient management of COVID-19. And this is, is thinking about things that modulate the immune system, so things like steroid, things that impact um, interleukins and other cytokine pathways. 
So uh, this slide summarizes data from the recovery trial. And the premise for this study was that it was really being increasingly recognized clinically that there was a subgroup of patients with COVID-19 who really had a severe inflammatory response that it was associated with high ele uh, levels of inflammatory markers, things like CRP, ferritin, interleukins, um, and uh, really uh, severe um, end uh, organ damage as a result. Um, and so there's some data um, in other um, uh, infectious uh, respiratory conditions where dexamethasone was thought to be useful, but in other cases, it was actually seen to be harmful. So this study was done to figure out what is the role of, uh, of the use of dexamethasone for patients with severe uh, disease from COVID-19. Um, so this is a UK-based trial, and people were randomized two to one um, to receive either the usual standard of care alone or standard of care plus dexamethasone, either, either oral or IV. This trial, um, the primary endpoint was all-cause mortality at 28 days after randomization, and it was stopped early because this was the first drug to show mortality benefit in this population. Um, and you can see from the figure on the right um, that uh, in the usual care group, mortality was about 26%, um, and in the dexamethasone group, it was lower at 23%. But you can also see clearly um, visually here who benefited the most. And so you can see here, it was either patients who were um, ventilated um, and or on oxygen, but not ventilated. And then similarly, you can see in patients who had milder disease who were not on oxygen, um, that they actually had an increased risk of mortality, uh, about 19% increased risk in, in adjusted analysis. So clear benefit here for dexamethasone um, in those who were uh, requiring oxygen and had more severe disease. So these findings were supported um, by subsequent meta-analysis. And this looked at seven randomized controlled trials. Uh, this was published in, in JAMA subsequently. But um, again, the impact of steroid administration and the outcome was 28-day mortality for critically ill COVID-19 patients. So this looked at patients who were in the ICU, required mechanical ventilation, and, and or required a su substantial amount of supplemental oxygen, so at least six liters a minute. Um, and it also looked at a combination of patients who were receiving different types of steroids, so dexamethasone, hydrocortisone, methylprednisone, either at higher dose or at lower doses. And um, so the forest plot on the right of this graph shows that almost all of the studies clearly favored steroid use and did not cross that kind of null line uh, where the odds ratio is equal to one. The overall estimate, estimated effect of, of steroids as an intervention for, the, for this critically ill group was re a reduction in, in mortality of between 30 and 34 uh, percent. So significant benefit of steroids again um, in a, a multi-site uh, meta-analysis, or oh, I'm sorry, no, um, uh, meta-analysis. So moving on now to IL-6. So interleukin-6 um, is released in response to infection and stimulates inflammatory pathways as part of an acute uh, phase reaction. And um, tocilizumab and cerilumab uh, uh, are monoclonal antibodies um, against the uh, IL-6 receptors, and they are used to treat other inflammatory conditions. 
And so this trial, the REMCAP trial, was a fairly complicated, pragmatic trial um, where patients were randomized to multiple interventions across a variety of domains. So they could have been um, randomized to get an antiviral and an immune modulator. Um, the bottom line is that for this analysis, the primary um, comparison was, be was between these IL, uh, um, IL-6 inhibitors, tocilizumab and cerilumab, compared to a control condition. And um, uh, and all of all but three of the patients um, in this in this trial had acute respiratory support with at least high flow nasal cannula. So they were um, you know more ill. The primary outcome was the number of it's a little bit complex, the number of respiratory and cardiovascular organ support free days at day 21. Um, and when you look at the outcomes here, uh, both of these agents, uh, tocilizumab and cerilumab, um, were associated with improvement in that primary endpoint and also an improvement in mortality relative to the control group. So um, this is additional data from the recovery trial um, looking at uh, tocilizumab. Um, which this is the probably described earlier, um, they had a comparison of tocilizumab versus usual care. And at this point, usual care included steroids because we've not already seen that benefit. So 82% of patients were on steroids. Um, and this was for patients who had hypoxia um, and evidence of systemic inflammation. So all of these patients had a CRP that was greater than or equal to 75. And you can see here um, the outcomes on the right uh, improvement in 28-day mortality, improvement in progression to invasive uh, ventilation or, or death. So this forest plot also shows the benefit of tocilizumab over usual care across um, most of the subgroups looked at. So days since symptom onset, um, the type of respiratory support they were rece receiving um, and the use of uh, corticosteroids. So now let's talk uh, about another immune modulator, baricitinib. Um, baricitinib is an orally administered selective inhibitor of a molecule called um, Janus kinase, the so JAK1 or 2 inhibitor. Um, this was actually predicted to uh, be of potential use in the treatment of COVID-19 using artificial intelligence algorithms, um, but it inhibits a signaling pathway of cytokines that are known to be elevated in severe COVID-19 disease, including things like IL-6, IL-10, interferon gamma, um, and other factors. So this, uh, there are two, two trials summarized here, ACT-2, which randomized over 1,000 patients to Baricitinib plus our friend remdesivir um, versus uh, placebo. And in that group, um, they found uh, that, uh, I'm sorry, um, people who uh, got baricitinib plus remdesivir um, did better than those who had placebo alone, um, except if they were on mechanical ventilation. Importantly, it did not uh, evaluate the effect of baricitinib with corticosteroids, so that's an important limitation. And then the COVID barrier trial uh, looked at patients receiving standard of care, um, which was 
remdesivir in 19% and corticosteroids in about 80% of patients. That's the data that is um, on the figure on the right. So you can see the primary endpoint there was death or progression to needing more advanced support. And the secondary outcome was um, all-cause mortality. So you can actually see, a, see improvement in that secondary outcome of all-cause mortality um, in the COVID barrier trial. So with all of this, what do the NIH and the IDSA say? So these are the most recent recommendations for baricitinib and tocilizumab. The NIH says that for hospitalized patients, they recommend either tocilizumab or baricitinib, which we affectionately call Tosi and Barry at my institution, in combination with dexamethasone with dexamethasone alone or with remdesivir for patients who are having more severe disease, high flow uh, um, oxygen, or non-invasive mechanical ventilation um, with evidence of progression of uh, inflammatory markers or rapid progression of severe disease. Um, also, importantly, baricitinib has been used also and recommended as a steroid um, substitute. So in patients who cannot receive corticosteroids, um, you can use baricitinib and remdesivir in combination in patients who are um, not intubated but require that supplemental oxygen. So think of it as a steroid substitute, that combination of baricitinib and remdesivir. Uh, similarly, IDSA uh, says um, that for patients with severe critical disease on high flow O2 again or non-invasive in ventilation, TOSI or BARI in addition to the standard of care. So um, this is actually a, a visual which may be helpful. This is just the NIH recommendations. Um, so hospitalized patients but don't require supplemental oxygen at all, we're really providing a supportive care here. Uh, remdesivir may be appropriate if um, they are progressing, you know, progressing to more severe disease. If they're hospitalized and require supplemental oxygen, we have data for the use of remdesivir, dexamethasone plus remdesivir, um, and then dexamethasone if, if, uh, if remdesivir can't be used, you can use dex alone. If they're requiring oxygen, high flow oxygen or um, non-invasive uh, ventilation, uh, similarly, this is where you can add on um, tocilizumab or baricitinab potentially if there's evidence of systemic infl inflammation. And then remember that that, that combination, um, uh, baricitinab plus remdesivir can be used as that steroid substitute. So always keep that in mind. And then the patients who are hospitalized um, and requiring invasive mechanical ventilation or ECMO, this is where really we have data for dexamethasab plus tocilizumab. So that's really your go-to for those with the most severe disease. So um, we're gonna circle back to this um, important conversation. We know, um, as we mentioned earlier, that you know, most patients who are, um, who are infected with COVID-19 disease have mild disease. Uh, but those 20% or so who have severe disease end up in the hospital um, and can have bad outcomes. Those are the ones we've just summarized. But we see that disparities exist all along that um, continuum uh, by, by race and ethnicity. Um, we highlighted earlier, Chuck highlighted earlier in the talk that racial and ethnic minorities have a one to two times increased risk of, of infection, two to four times increased risk of hospitalization or death from COVID-19 
um, compared to non-Hispanic Hispanic whites. And these disparities have really amplified um, much needed conversation and discussion on the importance of addressing drivers of structural racism in medicine and public health and important social uh, determinants of health. So uh, I'm gonna hand over to Chuck to talk about some of this data from New York. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for the, the great uh, summary on, on treatment. Um, it's, it's worth thinking about, you know, what are some of the underlying causes? And, and there is some data out there. And, and as everything else with COVID-19, it is changing. But uh, this is a study done from the experience in, in one um, major center when New York was undergoing a real crisis with COVID-19, seeing a ton of cases. Um, with a diverse patient sample, you could see that, um, as we've discussed, uh, folks, you know, folks who are either uh, black or Hispanic had higher rates of uh, a positive test for SARS-CoV-2 and were more likely to be hospitalized. You know, could there be a problem as well with the way we take care of patients? You know, once they are diagnosed, once they are hospitalized uh, with COVID-19, we certainly know there's a lot of um, disparities in terms of the way we treat patients based on race and ethnicity. You know, pain control being one, um, getting procedures such as cardiac catheterization would be another, um, and those are those are well established. In this study, um, they showed that actually uh, on adjustment uh, for comorbidities, uh, folks who are black and Hispanic actually had a lower risk of mortality. So, this study would suggest that uh, that really are those social determinants of health that are that are driving folks into the hospital uh, from black and Hispanic communities. Um, but it, it is contradicted by a study that was just published in JAMA Network Open yesterday. And this is a much larger study looking at Medicare enrollees across the country, 40,000 plus of them. And, uh, and what it showed was that, uh, that individuals who were black actually did have a higher risk of in-hospital mortality um, and that it had something to do with the way they were treated. And model, this is a co it's a retrospective cohort study with modeling, um, but still it did suggest that uh, essentially, that if black patients were treated in, in hospitals where there was predominance of white patients, um, their uh, risk of mortality would not be elevated. Um, so we always have to be introspective and, and think about the way we take care of people. And you know, certainly, uh, when I see uh, patients with multiple barriers to care who come from poor backgrounds, who have um, you know fairly uh, low index of understanding, you know, even as they're critically ill and not necessarily getting the information in a way they can understand in the language they prefer to speak, you know, that's somebody we really have to reach out to and go, go that extra effort uh, to try to treat them better. Um, because it's, it's not just this one study. Um, I will uh, let Ima talk about this study from another academic center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, thanks, Chuck. So this uh, study, um, what the objective of it was really to look at the association between race um, with incidents and outcomes from COVID-19 when controlling for a number of factors. So we try to control for age, sex, uh, socioeconomic status, zip code, and other medical comorbid comorbidities. So it was a cross-sectional study. It was uh, about uh, 2,500 patients. This is the lar largest academic system is in Wisconsin. So it was multi-site within Wisconsin. Um, in the study, they found that um, Blacks had... Uh, 29% of Blacks had greater than or equal to three medical com comorbidities, and that was a little bit higher than in the non-Black population. Um, poverty status, um, there was a much more poverty in the Black community compared to those who are non-Black in this cohort. Um, 
Interestingly, though, when they adjusted for, um, you know, a lot of these factors, including zip code, uh, socioeconomic status, et cetera, what they found was that um, COVID positivity was associated, remained associated with black race, with male sex, and with older age. Um, hospitalization, on the other hand, was associated with uh, black race and poverty. And then ICU admission was associated with poverty, but not black race. Um, so I think data like these and, and like the one from New York, you know, it, it can be really complicated to tease out the relationship between um, all of the kind of so socioeconomic and social determinants that we're trying to, uh, that we know are likely contributing to uh, disparate outcomes. Um, and, uh, and so I think we're seeing different things slightly in different, in, in different uh, settings, depending on the study approach, what they're able to model, what they're able to account for. Um, but at, at some level, we know that race, that poverty status, that socioeconomic status are influencing at least some, some of these outcomes. Uh, we'll go back and talk a little bit about sleep. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it actually influences the, you know, the most important outcome of all, which is you know, overall mortality. And think about the neighborhood, you know, and the area where you live, and you probably know about the health disparities that are that are regional or local to you. Um, and it's it's a difference between life or death for many folks. This is uh, research that looked at um, you know central New Jersey and uh, and looking at different zip codes and life expectancy, and you could see that you know just a difference of 19 miles between places uh, accounted for 14 years. And it's not the geography that's that's a that's a problem here. It's it's the fact that there is more poverty uh, in Trenton, that there is um, more more disadvantage. There's higher risk of uh, severe violence, etc. And those are the things that lower life expectancy overall. And this isn't just in New Jersey. This has been demonstrated in Baltimore, Maryland. It's been demonstrated in Alameda, California. And it's something I think we, we again we all know intuitively, and and there is good research. Uh, to support it, but it's just that COVID-19 has really drawn this out and made it more of a national uh, issue that, that, you know, even folks who are not in healthcare are paying attention to these days. And, and that has a lot to do with the social determinants of health. I'd like Ima to comment on that. Great. Sorry, I advanced that slide a little bit too early. So, yeah, so we've mentioned this, we've alluded to this already, and social determinants of health really has a kind of broad scoping definition. Um, the World Health Organization describes social determinants of health are conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age. So everything around and about us. And so as you can imagine, it can be conceived of in a number of ways. Um, this is one helpful way to look at the different categories of social determinants, things like economic stability, neighborhood and physical environment, including that zip code that, um, uh, or you know, exactly where you live, like Chuck just mentioned. Education, Chuck mentioned this as well, literacy, language, um, the ability to communicate well uh, with our, our patients and promote health literacy, um, access to food. Of course, food security, uh, if you're food insecure, you may not really be focused on, on anything else. You know, that may be the primary focus. Community and social context, and those are things like uh, discrimination and stress. And then the healthcare system itself, do you have access to healthcare coverage or to providers or to linguistically and culturally appropriate care? And so, um, you know, really growing uh, evidence supports the role of each of these social determinants on important health outcomes. 
And, you know, of course, all of this discussion, as we mentioned, has really been amplified um, in the context of COVID-19. Um, but I think that when looking at uh, a figure like this that really enumerates the breadth of social determinants, what they are, um, it really kind of calls out to us that the types of interventions we need to address these types of disparities are, are structural, they're scoping. So, um, and uh, there, there's, there are some large kind of uh, frame, frame shifts in how uh, we administer uh, health care on you know, a public health level, on an individual level, um, that need to happen to really address these outcomes um, in, in a better way. And, you know, there, there are a couple of, of thoughts here from different leaders in the field highlighting these comments. I'll just pause so you can see these important quotes. I'll, I'll give it back to Chuck to close to close out right. on this topic. Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that. Um, so, in summary, um, we we talked about the disparities based on race and ethnicity. It, it does come down uh, to the poverty, to the lower um, you know educational uh, status, to uh, to living in in difficult conditions, um, and so. There's, there's, and, and structural racism and violence uh, that, that have been present for a long time. That's really what's driving these higher uh, rates of hospitalization mortality among these in these communities uh, for COVID. Um, we also talked about treatment. So remember the monoclonal antibodies, you want to apply them uh, to folks who are at least 12 years of age. It's for outpatients only, and they have to have high risk of disease. Um, remdesivir is a good uh, treatment for inpatients. Um, particularly if they are on oxygen support, but not on uh, mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Um, you want to start these treatments in terms of antiviral therapy, um, which are, includes all those monoclonal antibodies as soon as possible. And dexamethasone has been associated uh, with lower mortality rates among patients with more severe COVID-19. And I really uh, like the slide you, you shared, Ima, with the, with the recommendations kind of one by one based on severity of inpatients. I think that was you know, really helpful as a summary. But, you know, the, that's just part of the story. I think it's also, as we've described, really getting to know patients. And when we talk about social determinants of health, it kind of, feel, it, it's natural to feel overwhelmed. Like, how can I make a difference in all these things? Well, you can apply it the way you take care of individual people. You can account for those factors. And then on a larger level, I hope we can all stand as advocates and allies, you know, and trying to create more, more structural change and frame shifts as Ima describes to uh, to make a difference. And it, and it does come down, it starts with individual patients and their experience. And so we do have a video that, that talks about one patient's story and I think it's particularly telling. I really was feeling bad and I knew something was wrong. So when I did wake up that Friday morning, I drove myself to the ER. The doctor came and she said, we can send you home on some oral antibiotics. I said, if I stay here, will I get the antibiotics I beat? And she said, yes. And I said, I think I wanna stay. But I did that because I was scared. The nurse that was taking care of me that day, I requested to her that she um, contact the doctor because I had been on every antibiotic and my temperature was still 104. And he said, we're going to test you for a respiratory panel. 
We're going to test you for HIV and we're going to test you for the coronavirus. I just hear someone screaming in the hallway. And I told my girlfriend, I said, that's my mom. So my girlfriend gets up to see, was that really my mom? And when she got up and went out the door, a security guard came and slammed the door closed. And I'm banging on the window, banging on the window, trying to know what's going on. The security guard kept his back to the door the whole time. I turned the wheelchair around and I looked up at the television. We are told, in fact, that there is a person who is being treated in New Orleans that is from Jefferson Parish right this now. This is a person who has contracted the coronavirus. They are from Jefferson Parish, but again, they are at the VA hospital in New Orleans getting treatment right now. Who do you think that was? Thank you so much to both of you. Um, we are going to move into the Q&A now and answer as many as time allows. Um, to honor everybody's time, we will keep this brief. Uh, but the first question is, um, and I'll um, give this to Dr. Ahankai, when should remdesivir be initiated? So I think like all, um, all of uh, the antiviral interventions we mentioned, as, so as soon as possible, um, after admission, and they have to have technically had their COVID-19 uh, diagnosis uh, within within 10 days, so the positive uh, either symptomatology or PCR test. Great, thank you. And the second question, um, what about inhaled steroids? Are those helpful for ambulatory patients? Well, there, there is some promising but early and preliminary data about the use of inhaled budesonide. It does have a mechanism for why it might be able to help patients um, when they are infected with COVID-19 and, um, and there, is, there is some positive outcomes in terms of reducing uh, further healthcare use, but it's not recommended, I think, for routine use at this time pending larger trials which are ongoing. Um, so inhaled stories, you know, is a possibility that might be, that might be something that we could uh, be using uh, more uh, more broadly in the future, in the near future. Okay. Um, and I'll, this one I'll just toss up. A uh, third question is, can someone who received the vaccine but then gets COVID-19 still use monoclonal antibodies for treatment? You want to start, Ima? Yeah, um, there's, there's no um, contraindication uh, with regard to um, getting the vaccine. I mean, there is the thought that if you've gotten, had COVID-19 disease or monoclonal antibodies for treatment, especially in the earlier phases of vaccine scale up, when we know you still have some likely short-term um, uh, protective effect, uh, then we wanted to prioritize people who had no protection from, from COVID-19 for getting vaccinated. But in terms of the, the opposite way around, um, if you're vaccinated and you've still gotten ill, um, you can still be eligible for monoclonal antibodies if you uh, meet the criteria. Okay. Um, thank you again um, to both of you for joining and thank you to all of our learners. Um, to our learners, if you'd like to claim credit, please do click the claim credit button that will appear at the webcast end and be on the lookout for our 30-day survey. You'll receive that through email. 
As always, your responses will help us develop further education. Uh, thank you for joining us for those questions that we did not get to. We will do our best to incorporate those into upcoming webinars, so please do stay tuned for that. Uh, thank you and have a great day.